0: Okay, back. we're back, we're gonna try again. I hope that, okay, now we're live, we're back. I hope it's this working this time. Our um, wonderful tech guy was saying that it was freezing, so he tried something else. So hopefully, we're streaming better now. And I'm gonna start at verse 27 of the first chapter of Philippians. That's where we speak, okay? What I had just said before, is that Paul had been saying that he expects to be around a a little bit longer and hopefully see the Philippians again, even though he's in prison. But since life is uncertain and we never know, this is how he starts the next verse. He says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. What a good line to remember, right? At any time, it might be a good memory verse. This doesn't even need context. A lot of verses, it's very important to keep the context to understand what he's talking about. But this one is perfectly capable of standing alone. It's applicable to any and every situation, and it's hard to misinterpret. This is what we are to do regardless of the circumstances. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let's start with just the first two words, whatever happens. We just don't know the future, do we? Paul knew better than we do not to boast about tomorrow. And I think of James chapter 4 when I think of not boasting about tomorrow where he says, you don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. So instead of making our own plans, say, if God lets us, then we can do this or that. But there are some things that don't change no matter what happens. And it's not like this verse doesn't apply to us if we are in certain circumstances. For instance, we don't get a pass if our life doesn't go as expected. We don't get a does not apply stamp if we're facing something difficult and our emotions are out of whack. The next phrase applies no matter what. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. I don't know if you noticed, but Paul has turned a corner here. This is the first time in his letter that he uses a command, conduct yourselves. Up till now, he has showered the Philippians with love and encouragement and his positive outlook. But now it's time to get serious. This is where the rubber meets the road, as they say. This is no suggestion. This is what we are commanded to do conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ." And the phrase conduct yourself is actually a political term, interestingly. You Greek scholars out there will enjoy this. The Greek word is poly- to my I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right, but it's where we get our word politics from. The word means to behave a, as a citizen to conduct oneself according to the laws and customs of the state. To live as a citizen in the Roman Empire in that day was something extraordinary. And Philippi was a Roman colony, so the Philippians understood this term clearly. Just as the style of life of a Roman citizen was much different than that of other people, so we too must have conduct that is different. Our lifestyle should match gospel and we must conduct ourselves like citizens of heaven now before i go on let me also clarify that behaving in a manner worthy of the gospel in no way implies that we as human beings are capable of earning the gospel's rewards not saying that we're worthy enough no one has ever been nor ever will be enough to receive the free gift of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's actually the author of the gospel himself who is the one worthy of us living this way. Jesus is the only one able to save and he's the only one worthy of our praise. So with that settled, let's think about how our lifestyle should reflect the gospel. What would it look like, practically speaking, for us to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Say it out loud if you'd like. Sometimes I have to think, hmm, what would it look like for me to live in a way that would be worthy of the gospel? The first thing that came to my mind was Jesus' command before he went to the cross to love one another. And he said that this is how the world would know that we are his disciples. And then after I thought of love, I thought of all the rest of the fruit of the Spirit as well. And to me, that would be a way that we could conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Hopefully, you have some other ideas you can talk about. But I searched the Bible to see if there were other places in the Bible where we are told what it would look like to live in a way worthy of the gospel. And I found out that Paul had some ideas of his own of what this would look like. When he prayed for the Colossians to live a life worthy of the Lord, he prayed it would include bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, in order to have great endurance and patience, and joyfully giving thanks to the Father. That's quite a list. He also urged the Ephesians to live a life worthy of the calling they had received. And he told them that that would include being completely humble and gentle, being patient, bearing with one another in love. And then he finished by saying that we should make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And just like in those letters, if we go on here in Philippians, we'll see a few more ways that Paul expects to see the Philippians' godly behavior demonstrated. He says, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way, by those who oppose you. So whether Paul ends up getting to see them in person again as he expects, or only receiving news from afar, this is what he expects of them. Standing firm in one spirit, contending as one, and not being frightened. Let's start with the first one, standing firm in one spirit. The phrase stand firm refers to someone who is unmoving It's a model of perseverance, really. And it occurs 33 other times in the Bible. I'm only going to mention a few. The first is in Exodus, when the Israelites are facing the Red Sea, and Moses tells them to stand firm and see the deliverance of the Lord. Later, when they're facing a vast army, the Spirit of the Lord comes down on a Levite named Jehaziel, who tells them, They will not have to fight this battle. Only march down, take up their positions, stand firm, and again, they would see the deliverance of the Lord. That comes from 2 Chronicles 20. Isaiah is famous for saying, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Jesus said, the one who stands firm to the end will be saved, And finally, in Paul's illustration in the armor of God, he says, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. And in this instance, he emphasizes that our standing firm should be done not just as individuals, but as a body. The way we stand firm is in one spirit. In our country's famous words, United we stand, divided we fall. This emphasis on unity continues in the next phrase. So we'll move on to contending as one. The definition for contending as one says, To wrestle in company with, to seek jointly, labor with, strive for. And my original NIV said, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, but now it's gender, gender neutral form, says striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. I looked up the original Greek for that word where it says man in the original NIV, and it's actually the word for soul, which I really liked. So it could be translated that we should be striving together as one soul for the faith of the gospel. One commentary I read explains it like a three-legged race. Do you remember those three-legged races? You either have your leg tied or maybe in a sack with another person next to you. That's why there's three legs. You each have one on the outside and then the one tied together is one leg that is between the two of you. And this is what he says. If you've ever been in a three-legged race, you know it is impossible to win the race as an individual. Your team, your partnership, is only as good as the slowest runner or the weakest person. If one of the two people tied together falls to the ground, the other person has no other option but to help their partner to their feet and then the two begin again to move as one. Paul often used terms in his epistle that, outside the Bible, were used in reference to sporting events. Growing up in a Greco-Roman world, no doubt Paul had those games of old in mind. But the sporting games of two millennia ago, while similar to some of today's Olympic events, were in other ways quite different. Many of them were fights to the death. Paul's expectation of the Philippians was that they would endure together, that they would fight together, and if necessary, die together for their shared faith in Christ and belief in his word. I like that quote. And that right there is what I would call contending as one soul for the faith of the gospel. So here's a question for us How well? Are we standing firm in one spirit? Do we strive together as one soul for the faith of the gospel? Something to think about. And then the third piece, and we're talking about the third piece of behaving like a citizen of heaven, says without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Fear is one of the enemy's greatest weapons. I've been hearing a lot about fear in connection with the coronavirus, obviously. More than one person has made the point that the most dangerous thing is not the virus itself, but what people do when they act out of fear. I've heard the famous line repeated, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And I think there's truth to that. Here Paul says that we should not be frightened in any way by those who oppose us. So who are those who oppose us? Is it man? Let's read Psalm 56, 4. In God I trust and am not afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? And then Isaiah 51. I, even I, am he who comforts you, God says. Who are you that you fear mere mortals? Human beings who are but grass. So if it's not man, who then is the one that opposes us? Well, Paul tells us in Ephesians very clearly who our enemies are. He says our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And let me remind you, They have been defeated. They have been stripped of their authority. So what do they do? They try to scare and deceive us into making our own poor choices. David Guzik said, When our spiritual enemies fail to make us afraid, they have failed completely. Because they really have no other weapon other than fear and intimidation. When we win the battle against fear, the enemy knows he is defeated. Look at the next verse in Philippians. Remember, he just finished saying, Without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. And now he says, This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. Don't you just love that? This is a sign to them, to the enemies, to those who oppose us. Here, the sign can also be translated as evident token, a demonstration, or a proof. So basically, our lack of fear is proof of the enemy's destruction and our salvation. Did you know that? I thought that was pretty cool. How are you doing in your fight against fear? If you feel yourself being frightened in any way, I believe the Lord would direct you, direct us, back to the root of love once again. Remember in chapter 1, at the beginning of chapter 1 in the prayer, the root was love and out of that came lots of other things that would help us live well. But now when I think of battling fear, 1 John 4 comes to mind. In verse 16, he says, We know and rely on the love God has for us. Then in verse 18, There is no fear in love. Why? Because perfect love drives out fear. So if you struggle with fear, go back and fill your mind with verses on the love that God has for you that is what will drive out fear so he says and this will be a sign to them that they will be destroyed but that you will be saved and that by god it's not clear whether paul is referring just to that last part about not being frightened or to all three parts of that sentence being the sign but either way we're called to stand firm to contend as one soul and not be frightened by those who oppose us. And as we finish chapter 1, we finish with a sobering verse. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. The Philippians were most likely experiencing the same kind of persecution and opposition to the gospel that Paul had. He reminds us that the privilege to believe in Christ also comes with the privilege of suffering for him and with him. So I did a search in the New Testament on suffering. You'll find there's no shortage of it, but for the believer, the encouraging part is that it's always temporary and it's always attached to hope. Remember I talked about perspective at the beginning? Paul even b- brings perspective on our suffering. Jesus warned us in advance saying, "In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world." And that's in John 16:33. Acts 5:41 The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. And just notice how they use that term because later on tonight we're going to see that name again. Romans 8, now if we are children then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. That means you're a son, you're a daughter. And everything that belongs to Christ belongs to you. If indeed, it says, we share in his sufferings in order that we also may share in his glory. Then the very next verse says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. So that was Romans 8, 17 and 18. Peter has something to say about it too. He says, even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. And he connects it to not being afraid. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. Then in chapter four, he says, dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Jesus told us that's how it would be. The very next verse in 1 Peter says, Rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. And then in Revelation, it says, Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the victor's crown. So, don't be surprised. Don't be afraid, just keep your eyes on Jesus. Your redemption is very near. Then we go on to chapter two, but it's still just the same thought we've been in. Thinking about what he just said, he goes on to say, so if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion. And I'm going to pause right there. I think we just read a lot of verses that show we do receive all of these things from Christ. And so here are four reasons why we can face any difficult circumstance that life may bring. First, encouragement from being united with Christ. My union with Christ actually puts courage in me. That's what encouragement means. And I know that I don't have to do things in my own strength. Isn't that good to know? He puts courage in you. You're not doing it on your own. You're united with him and he gives you strength. Number two, his love brings great comfort. I hope you have experienced that. Number three, I have sweet fellowship with the Spirit. The more you get to know the Spirit, the more you enjoy the sweet fellowship. And number four, I can receive, and that means I can also give tender mercy. The last piece, if any, tenderness and compassion. If you have these things, this is a rhetorical question. He says, yes, we do have these things in Christ. Do you? If you don't, I want you to know it is available to you. Just ask. So, since we have these things, Paul goes on to tell us what we should do, how we should act. He says, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. So when it says, be like-minded, does that mean we should be like-minded like each other? Like we think like each other? Or like-minded like we think like Christ? And I would say the answer is yes. Yes to both because if we are like-minded like Christ, then we'll also end up being like-minded with each other, at least in the important things. We may differ on some things. And that should make us have the same love as Christ and end up being one in spirit and purpose. After all, Christ is the head of his body, which is us, the church. And we should move as one under his direction. If you spend much time with Jesus, you know that the unity of his body, the church, is very important to him. That's what he prayed for in his last prayer before he went to the cross. It's recorded in John 17, and I'll just read three short verses. He says, I pray for those who will believe in me through their message, the message of the disciples that would go on to people like us down the line. He prays that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. And it says, then the world will know that you have loved them, even as you have loved me. The Trinity is our best example of unity. Isn't it amazing that God wants us to be a part of that, for us to be in Jesus, in the Father? Jesus said, I in them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. To me, that sounds like being one in spirit and purpose. And then Paul goes on to flesh out a little more of what this unity should and should not include. He says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. The first word we see here is selfish ambition, and we've seen this one before. Do you remember it? Back in chapter 1, it was the way some people were preaching Christ with with, um, false motives. Selfish ambition. They were desiring their own advancement. Then we see vain conceit and that is defined as vain or empty glory. Both of these are the opposite of humility. Humility means lowliness of mind, recognizing our smallness, and then my favorite part, a true estimate of who we are. I like that because sometimes when we hear the word humility, We think that we're just supposed to think less of ourselves. But it's actually a true estimate of who you are. Neither more, neither less. But just knowing who God made you as you are. I've said before that humility is not thinking more of yourself or thinking less of yourself. It's just not thinking about yourself. Your mind is on other things. It's on what God has on his heart. And then the last part says consider others better we're to esteem one another above ourselves that doesn't mean that we're comparing and saying this person's better than me or I'm better than another person it's an attitude of preferring the other person and thinking of their needs ahead of our own so if you notice humility is what brings unity considering others ahead of ourselves Jesus said, Those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This verse says we should do nothing with selfish motives or for our own glory. I find it so interesting since we just read John 17, where Jesus said, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. Did you notice that part? In order for us to be unified, Jesus gave us the glory given to him by the Father. When we try to get glory on our own, remember where it said, do nothing out of for vain glory or vain conceit? When we try to get it for ourselves, it's empty. It's in vain. But when we humble ourselves under the Lordship of Jesus, He gives us the glory from the Father, and this should lead to our unity. I think this is just another good example of what we call the upside-down kingdom, the paradox of the gospel. We give to receive. We lose to win. We die in order to truly live. So ask yourself, how am I doing in this area of unity is my focus on myself it's hard for it not to be in our world isn't it (laughs) we constantly hear, look out for number one be you do whatever you want the customers always write do those sound familiar just look at the commercials this idea of humility, of considering the other person first is very countercultural. Do I consider others better than myself? Remember, be careful of the comparison trap. That's not what we're talking about here. Do I look for the interests of others? The Lord wants to teach us to prefer others and he always will take care of us. Notice that we're not told to ignore our own interests. It says to look not only to your own interests. There is no need for a martyr complex. Please care for yourself. You will be much more useful to the body if you take care of yourself. It's natural to look out for your own interests. But Paul is just reminding us that we should also look to the interests of others." And now we come to the final portion for the night. It's a big portion. I'm going to read it all together. I hope you've heard this before. He summarizes these ideas of how we should treat each other by telling us to look at Jesus as an example. He says, your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ, who in very nature God did not consider being equal with God, something to hold on to. But he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, And gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It doesn't get any better than that. That's such a beautiful piece of scripture. It's a whole sermon right there. But first let's start with a point on doctrine. This passage explicitly tells us that Jesus in his very nature is God. He said multiple times in the book of John, I and the Father are one. And they understood what he was saying. That's why they wanted to kill him. He was one with the Father before his incarnation and becoming human did not make him any less Deity. One of the notes in my Bible explains it well. It says, in speaking of the carnation, Christ merely relinquished his glory which he had due the fact that he was Deity. Before going to the cross, he asked the Father to glorify him with the glory he had before the world was created. The Lord lacked recognition and glory by men, while he was here on earth as the incarnate God. However, as far as God was concerned, Christ never lost his position before God. Jesus was so secure in his identity that he was willing to give up his glory for a time to become like us. So we could look on him. Remember back in Exodus, When Moses wanted to look at the face of God and he said, it'll kill you, basically. He said, I'm going to put you in the rock and put my hand over you. And after I pass by, you'll get to see a little bit of my glory from behind. Jesus had to give up that glory so we could look on him. So we could interact with him. But he never lost the true nature of who he really was and who he is, Deity. Colossians 1.15 says, The sun is the image of the invisible God. And then 19 said, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Jesus even decided to show his glory to his three closest friends one time. Do you remember? They call it the Transfiguration. You can find it in Luke 9, 28 to 36. Jesus was actually transfigured before them. It was so cool that Peter wanted to build some kind of shelters for each of them and stay there. But Jesus knew he couldn't stay that way. Not yet, anyway. He just wanted to show them who he was, to let them in and really understand who he was. But Jesus did not cling to the glory of his divine nature. It says he decided to make himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant by being made in human likeness. When Jesus became human, he became a servant to the Father. You may recall how often he would say, I only say what I hear the Father say. I only do what I do the Father do. His will was totally submitted to the will of the Father. That is the mindset of a servant. Then he said, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death. It seems to me like it was one step to humble himself just to become Human, and then another step to humble himself even further to become obedient to death. Obedient to death. Think about that. We don't have a choice. Death takes us whether we want it to or not. But Jesus had a choice. Death has no authority over deity. Jesus chose it. He chose obedience to the will of the Father because he knew it was the only way to save you and save me. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross, which we know is the worst kind of death imaginable. And I won't go into detail of what that looks like, But we are to have this attitude, this mindset, as some versions rightly translate that word. The same mindset or attitude that Jesus had. I would call it a victorious mindset. Another good reason for the title of this study. It is the perfect example of the upside down gospel we just referred to. Jesus humbled himself and God exalted him. Listen, if we can get this one attitude right, so many other things fall into place. This mindset is crucial for every Christian. Jesus knew who he was. I want you to listen to this statement. Once we are secure in who we are in Christ, we have no need to try to gain things for ourselves or even to hold on to what we already have. That's so important, I'm going to say it again. You have to know who you are. Once you are secure in who you are in Christ, there's no need to worry about holding on to what you have or gaining anything more. Jesus was God and it didn't feel He didn't feel the need to hold on to that. Now, when we're secure in Christ, there's no need to sell ourselves, to prove ourselves, to defend ourselves, protect ourselves, or promote ourselves. We can simply humble ourselves and be obedient to our Father in heaven knowing that he is more than capable of taking care of us and he will work out everything for our good in the end. I'm not saying this is easy. It does require trust and it requires obedience. It requires patience, dying to yourself, which is really hard, but it is so worth it. When you finally decide to die to yourself, you get to live the incredible life that God has prepared for you. It will be the best adventure you could ever imagine. He made you. He knows what you like. He knows what fulfills you. He knows what makes you come alive. Jesus said in John 10.10 that he came to give us life in abundance. life to the full. Don't let the enemy steal that by believing the lie that doing what you want to do is what will make you happy. And don't believe the lie that surrendering to God will bring pain or suffering or just plain boredom. You will never get a bad deal when you choose to put your life in God's hands. You're in good hands when you're in God's hands. And this is not a commercial for Allstate. (laughs) Therefore, now we get to the best part. Therefore, because of what he did, because he knew who he was and he chose to be a servant to be obedient to the Father's will, Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. Jesus has been exalted to the highest place. Did you realize that? He said after his resurrection, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. There is no one above him. He has the name that is above every name. And you need to understand that the word name carries much more significance than we might realize. The name is not just a word by which we call someone. Biblically speaking, the name is the essence of that person. That's why God has so many names because they describe his character. They are his nature. For instance, El Shaddai means the Lord God Almighty. El Roy, the one who sees. Jehovah Jireh, our provider. Jehovah Rapha, our healer, and many more. Jesus also had some different names. His personal name, Jesus, in the Greek literally means Savior. But he also has some other ones. He's called the Christ, the Messiah. Yeshua is his Hebrew name. Alpha and Omega meaning beginning and end. Servant. Look in Isaiah. He's called the servant, as we just read about a few verses back in Philippians. The Root of David, the Israelites, did I use all the ones I had on the screen? Yeah, there they are. Oh, Son of Man and the Word, the Word that became flesh. That's in John chapter 1. The Israelites in the Old Testament understood better than we do how sacred these names were. And that's why they were so careful about how they used the name of God. They wouldn't even speak his personal name. Yahweh, written in in the original with just the capital letters Y-H-W-H, which later, in a weird way, ended up being pronounced Jehovah, but that's where that name came from. In our Old Testament, when you see written Lord in all capital letters, that's his personal name, Yahweh, that they wouldn't write. Many devout Jews today still won't say or write Yahweh. It's just too holy, too awesome. And since it was too sacred of a name to utter out loud, the Jews started to substitute other names like Adonai or my Lord or simply Hashem, which literally means the name, which we saw in the verse earlier tonight that I told you to pay attention to. How about us? How flippantly do we use the name of God? What about the name Jesus? The name that is above every name. I hear it used in some of the most unholy ways. And it's not okay. It deserves the utmost respect we are handling the very essence of our Savior, the essence of our God. And it should not be thrown around in an unworthy manner. It is the name above every name. We're taught to pray in the name of Jesus. And we're taught that for a reason, not just for religious liturgy. It actually has power. Like the song says, there is power in the name of Jesus. When you use his name, you are literally bringing the presence and the authority of the person of Jesus, who is one with the Father, into your situation. Jesus himself teaches us that we should use the power of his name I'll just show you a couple of places he does it more than just these but in John 16 he says my father will give you whatever you ask in my name until now you have not asked for anything in my name ask and you will receive then in John 17 when Jesus is praying for his disciples He says, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me. Then after his resurrection, he said, these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will drive out demons. And he lists several other miraculous signs, including laying hands on the sick and making them well. The disciples understood this and they modeled it in the book of Acts. Here's a few examples. Acts, 13, Acts 3, 16. By faith in the name of Jesus this man whom you see and know was made strong. And then they declare it is Jesus's name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you all can see. 410, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Then they're told twice that they are not to speak specifically in the name of Jesus anymore. And so they go home and they pray, Stretch out your hand, Lord, to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. We are to preach just as they did, that salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. We're also to baptize as they did in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we're to do all things in his name. Paul says in Colossians, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. And as I come to the end, I want to share something very important here with you that is in regard to using his name. The name of Jesus is not some magic word. The name comes with power when it is tied to two important things. You'll find them in the scriptures I just read. Listen again. Jesus said, these signs will accompany those who believe. And in Acts 3, by faith in the name of Jesus, this man was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him. So, did you see it? Did you find the first one? The first thing we need in conjunction with The name of Jesus is faith, is to believe. This power is for those who believe, and Paul spells it out very clearly. In Ephesians 1.19, he prays that we would know this incomparably great power for those who believe, for us who believe. It doesn't mean that you have to have perfect faith. Remember, do you remember the man who said, I believe, help my unbelief. And Jesus did, but you have to at least have some faith like that of a mustard seed. And the more you use it, the more it grows. The second thing that you have to have along with faith, belief, when you use the name of Jesus is to be submitted to the Lordship of Jesus. The Bible says, even the demons believe. That's why belief isn't the only thing. And they shudder, but they do not submit to him. You have to be submitted to Jesus as Lord. Did you catch it when I read Colossians 3.17? Whatever you do, Whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. When he's your Lord, that means you're submitted to his will. Jesus said we could ask anything in his name and we would get it. I mean, that's quite an offer. But we know his name is not like some magic wand. Jesus, I want this, I want that and I say it in his name that's not how it works what did we just learn about the name his name is his essence his nature that includes his will so we can ask anything that would be consistent with his nature that would be in his will John understood this very well and he says it more explicitly in his first letter Listen to 1 John 1, 5, verse 13 to 15. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God. If we ask anything according to his will, he substituted that in place of where Jesus had said, in his name. He hears us. And if we know he hears us, Whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of him. Friends, we can have great confidence in approaching God when we ask in faith and in submission to his will. Let me give you a sobering example of what can happen when we try to use his name without these two key elements. It comes from Acts chapter 19. And I'll read from verse 13 through 17. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, In the name of Jesus, the one whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Seva a Jewish chief priest were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I know about, but who are you? And then it says, the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding, seven of them. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Did you see what was going on here? I always wondered about this passage before I understood why this demon possessed man was able to overpower them when they were using the name of Jesus. It's because they had no relationship with Jesus at all. They weren't believing in him and much less were they submitted to him. Paul was and many other disciples were. But when you don't have that relationship, you don't just throw around his name and expect to have the power that really comes from the relationship, from the submission. The name of Jesus comes with power and great authority, but those of us who use it must believe and be submitted to his will. You don't just wave it around while you have no relationship. Now, let me also share a short example of someone who did it the right way. This was a few years ago. I have a vivid memory of Shanette and Shanette. I know I mentioned you last week, but girl, I don't know why the Lord just wants to call you out again and say, you're doing a good job. You're a behind the scenes person most of the time, but you're an awesome example. But anyway, you stood up in church one day and Shanette that morning, someone had broken into her apartment. There was a man in there, and I don't remember if he was trying to steal something or what else he was doing, but I know that she yelled the name of Jesus, and he ran out of there. And then at the end of her testimony, she finished with a line that is embedded in my memory. She said, the name of Jesus ain't no joke. And I can't think of a better way to end this point than by telling you to remember. The name of Jesus ain't no joke for those who know him and obey him. Now, let's just recap. Jesus let go of his divine glory. He became human, and he submitted to his Father's will. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. And gave him the name that is above every name. The name of Jesus ain't no joke. And now we read the last phrase. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now that phrase, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, intrigued me because I hear about heaven and earth all the time. But what about with the third part? Well that only appears two other times in the Bible with all three of those together, heaven and earth and under the earth. And they're both in the same chapter. Any guesses on where you find it? I bet Mickey knows. It's in Revelation, chapter 5, verse 3 and then verse 13. This is where we have the picture of the throne room of heaven. If you remi- I, I don't know if you're familiar with Revelation, but it's the revelation of Jesus given to John, and he's writing it down, and he sees the throne of heaven. I can't go into everything he sees, but God is sitting there on the throne, and he has in his right hand, a scroll with seven seals on it. I'm trying to decide if I should go into, I think I have enough time. That scroll is something that I never understood completely until I took the class um, from Mickey on, on Ruth, on the Ruth, because we learned about land deeds back in the Old Testament times And the deed for the land would be written on a scroll, only on one side, and then rolled up and sealed. And then on the outside would be written the qualifications for the person who could open that scroll. Meaning you had to be from the right family in order to have the land that belonged to you because the land was given to each family who um, were part of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so when she explained that, the first thing I thought of was this chapter in Revelation. I was familiar with that, that there was a scroll that was sealed and it says no one could open it because written on it were the qualifications of who could open it and no one qualified. That's what it says here in chapter five of Revelation. It says no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth, they just want to make sure nowhere could open the scroll or even look inside it. And then John says, so he wept. They all wept because they couldn't find anyone worthy to open the scroll. But then we see a picture of the one who looked like a lamb who had been slain, the picture of Jesus who comes in and he is worthy to open the scroll. He meets the qualifications because he is the sacrificed lamb of God who gave his life for us. And then the next time in verse 13, now everyone is praising him because he was worthy to open the scroll. And it says, then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and on the sea, and all that is in them. He added even more, saying, to him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be praise, and honor, and glory, and power forever and ever. Isn't that just beautiful? So that's the only other place where you see so explicitly that he talks about people in heaven and on earth and even under the earth, making sure that no one is left out. Friends, there is only one person who could redeem all of creation. And one day, every knee is going to bow to Jesus. And every tongue is going to confess that he is Lord. And just to be perfectly clear, that when he says every knee and every tongue, he means everyone. God goes to the trouble of specifying in heaven, meaning all the heavenly beings on earth, which includes all of us. And under the earth, when I looked up what that means, that refers to the place of departed souls the people who have died listen to what John chapter 5 says verse 28 and 29 dead people will come out of their graves and rise either to life or to condemnation no one is left out this includes all humans who have ever lived and all other creatures creatures be they heavenly or earthly including angels and demons. Men mocked Jesus by bowing to Him when He went to the cross. But there is coming a day, and I believe that day is so very near, when these same men, along with every other being, will bow to Jesus, whether they want to or not. You and I will bow to Jesus too. I want to. But let me just encourage you. Don't wait till then. Make your choice to submit to him, to bow to him, to confess his name now. It's much better to choose to do it now. Let me pray for us. Oh, Father, I thank you for these verses we were able to go over today. Thank you for all the things you're teaching us. Thank you for encouraging us that whatever happens, we should conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of your gospel. Help us do that by the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord. For the things you taught us about how to stand firm and contend as one. And not being frightened by any opposition. Be it physical, earthly people who are not truly our enemies. Or be it the real enemy. May we not be frightened, Lord. And this is a sign. This is proof of their destruction and our salvation. Lord, help us be willing not only to believe in your name but also to suffer with you. I believe that we won't have to suffer the tribulation in the end but we do suffer with you for how you care for your body and how we grieve for each other when we go through difficult things. And thank you, Lord, for these four things you've given us to help us face everyday life. Encouragement from being united with Christ. I mean, what more do we need, Lord? Comfort from your love, fellowship with your spirit, the tenderness and compassion that you have that you put in us so we can be merciful to others. Lord, help us with our attitudes. That we would be people who choose to be humble, not to always look and focus on our own needs, but also to look out for others. That we would follow your example. And Lord, this point that was just so important to me, to learn, to be secure in who I am, just like Jesus was secure in who he was as God, that he didn't have to hold on to it, that he could give it up and say, Father, I'm in your hands. Help us be like that, Lord. Help us be people that are so secure in our identity that we don't have to hold on or try to grab to get things, to defend ourselves, to prove ourselves. All those things we talked about, Lord, I pray that we would understand our identity in Christ and that we would willingly submit to you, that we would honor the name above all names, that we would use the power and authority that we have in the name of Jesus because we believe in who you are and we submit to your will, Lord. May we be powerful in this world because we carry the name of Jesus, the name above all names. And may all glory that comes from anything we do, may all glory go to you, Lord. I bless each of my friends watching tonight. I bless you in the powerful name of Jesus with all blessings in Christ. And I pray in his name. Amen.